0: We are going to talk about money. Not about giving, but about money. So if you're visiting, please don't leave. Um, We're going to talk about money because money is an amazing thing. Isn't it? Isn't it amazing what money can do? Money does amazing things. Money affords us good food. Amen? (laughs) Because of Money, we can, we can have all kinds of amazing food to enjoy. Our fitness pursuits are enabled by money. Houses, vehicles, education, entertainment, relationships, at least in some sense. Safety, at least in some sense. Health, in some sense. Our appearance, and the list goes on. Money, we can change the way we look, we can get in better shape, we can be safe, we can enjoy things that we wouldn't be able to enjoy otherwise. I would like to say there are few things that money can't buy, because there are a lot of things that money can buy. In Ecclesiastes, we learn from someone who not only was world famous for his wisdom, he was also world famous for his money. Solomon was so famous for being wise that people would travel from other continents to come and hear him to get his sages' advice. But he was also known because he was extraordinarily wealthy, he was a rich man. And what Solomon helps us with, and as I like to say, it's not a word to the wise, we overestimate ourselves. What Solomon helps us with is a word from the wise. He helps us to understand what money can't buy. It bought him a whole lot of things, just like it's probably buying you a whole lot of things. Even if you don't think you have a lot of money, you probably do compared to a lot of people in the world, and all the great things you're enjoying shows that you actually have quite a bit of resources. Solomon's going to help us Because he needs to help us understand that money, resources, wealth, while it can change the way we look and it can change what we know and it can make us safe and all those kinds of things, it cannot secure genuine, lasting significance. Or it can't secure genuine happiness. It cannot do it. Because no matter how happy you might be and how happy your money might even make you, Because let's be honest, in certain ways it makes us pretty happy. Ultimately, it's going to fail you. Ultimately, your money won't make you happy. Because ultimately, your life's going to be over. And your money will do you no good. And so Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 helps us with this perspective. And in a sense, he helps us by making us desperate. He helps us by bringing us to the point of of absolute, well, if money can't do it, then what could do it? Kind of desperate. And then it's sort of like, well, I'm glad you asked. And so we'll we'll have him take us there. I want to remind you of a couple of things before we actually jump into the text about Ecclesiastes. I want to remind you that it is a difficult book. Okay? The Bible even says that some parts of the Bible are hard to understand. So it's legitimate to say some of it's hard to understand. I think a lot of the Bible, if not most of the Bible, is pretty straightforward. I think Ecclesiastes is a tough go. It's a challenge. But we want to look at the whole counsel of God. So sometimes we want to look at hard books. um, And we're looking at a hard book now. A very helpful hint I would suggest to you as you read Ecclesiastes is to remember to read bigger sections than smaller sections. Remember the whole. If you only look at the trees and not the forest, you're going to maybe come to the false sense that it's filled with all these good little pieces of advice. And then one day you're going to read the whole thing and be really confused. When you look at the whole, you know from the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 2, it tells us that everything is futile, including wisdom, (laughs) Okay, if you don't have a true knowledge of who God is. And that's the reoccurring, haunting theme that keeps coming up again and again and again. And just remember that as you're reading the whole, and it will help you a ton. It will help you a ton. Also remember that it seems as if you you take that perspective, it has more of a pessimistic bent. It has more of a negative bent, leaving us in desperation. So we look for the solution, which is a true knowledge of God. And then finally, remember and know that when you're reading through the book... It seems as if what Solomon is trying to do to make his point is he's setting aside a true knowledge of God. A biblical knowledge of God. And he's doing his best just based upon human wisdom and observation to draw conclusions. Okay? And I think if you remember that, it'll help. This section deals with riches, with wealth... Uh, Chapter 5, verse 8, down to chapter 6, verse 12. So the whole of chapter 6 and a half of chapter 5. If you're taking notes and you'd like an outline this morning, uh, let's, let's call it seven conclusions about wealth that lead you to emptiness. Seven conclusions about wealth that lead you to emptiness, that lead to despair, you'd like a different version of that you could even come uh, and write down seven conclusions about wealth that expose it to being uh, as being a bad savior if you want it even shorter and you're saying why didn't you tell us that first i don't know Um, (laughs) this is why this is why wealth is a bad savior multiple reasons why wealth won't deliver and it won't give you happiness it won't be a good savior Just to illustrate how complicated Ecclesiastes is sometimes, one thing that Solomon does is he he covers a big theme like wealth and money like he's going to here. But before he does it, he picks up something he's already talked about. So my nice and neat sermon outline doesn't work. Um, So before we actually get to the wealth part, he gives us two verses of review about government corruption. Well, he's already talked about government corruption in chapter Uh, 3 verse 16 chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 but he brings it up again um, As he is fond of doing rebringing things up so we don't forget So let's just read those verses and make a simple observation That would be verses 8 and 9 and then we'll move on to talk about wealth If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness do not be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. This, this corruption permeates the whole system. Verse 9, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. And again, verse 9 could be seen as a positive, but in light of verse 8, and in light of chapter 3, verse 16, and in light of chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it seems that the king committed to the cultivated fields, he's committed to them for his own gain. So I'll read that as a negative. He's resurfacing what he brought up before and that's this. Government isn't a good savior. And we talked about that at length. Government isn't a good savior because there's corruption everywhere including there. And he's just reminding us of that again. Now let's talk about wealth and let's begin by talking about wealth with that first conclusion that leads us to emptiness. Wealth is not going to bring lasting satisfaction. Wealth does not satisfy, ultimately, would be point number one. That's the first conclusion about wealth. And we see it in verse 10. Look there with me if you would. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. That says it all. So the super short sermon before you go to sleep is that. Okay, you want to get the gist of it so you can have a family conversation? There you go. It's never going to satisfy. You can can pursue it all day long and you can get on that treadmill and somehow it's going to make me happy. If I just have more of this, that, and the other thing, what money can buy, and it's not going to work. And so whether it's wealth or what wealth can buy, it's not going to deliver. It simply isn't point of interest would be comparing ecclesiastes with proverbs solomon's writing in proverbs whichever one i did first i don't remember but writing in proverbs and oftentimes wealth is associated with wisdom and hard work it's a virtue and now in song uh, not in song of solomon that's a whole different kind of virtue Um, (laughs) it's a different kind of proverbs 31 woman anyway so (laughs) proverbs positive work hard Wise people do that, they're not lazy, so they have wealth. And now in Ecclesiastes, wealth is shown to be problematic, and the pursuit of wealth is problematic, and it's going to be empty. What's going on? Is he contradicting himself? He's not contradicting himself, he's making the point that we've already stated, and that is, if it's going to give you ultimate meaning in life, who you are, your significance is bound up in this pursuit, then you've lost your mind. It's futile. It's an endless kind of treadmill sort of thing. It's never, ever, ever going to fully satisfy you, and you would be foolish to be such a person. That's the first conclusion that he draws loud and clear, plain for us to see. If I could just broaden it a little bit by way of application, because at the beginning we talked about what money can buy, just so we don't think this just has to do with how many ones or how many hundreds I have in my wallet. Think of all the things that money allows us to do. But in the end, all of those things you're enjoying that that makes up who you are, it defines you, it's not going to be enough. Okay? It's not going to be enough. Just one more workout. Just one more facelift. Just one more tummy tuck. Just one more great meal. Just one more awesome vacation. Just one more relationship. Just making my life a little safer. Just one more car. Just one more home improvement. It's never really going to satisfy because just one more, we all know, is not really just one more. Oh, and by the way, he'll get there and then you die. And so he's challenging us, saying, that isn't going to be it. And by the way, it's not that I'm speaking from envy because I've never experienced it. He's experienced it. And so it's quite helpful. Let's move on to another conclusion about wealth that leads to emptiness and thereby provides us with a need. Number two, wealth brings complications. Verse 11 says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Okay, I'm getting more. I'm getting more wealth. And the first point he seems to make is that that just brings complications as far as what he says there in the verse. Uh, They increase who eat them. Probably something in view of, okay, I'm a business owner and I'm going to build a bigger business. And I've got more people working for me because they're going to help me to make more wealth. And my life just got more complicated because I have more people, more mouths to feed, more responsibilities, and that usually ends up leading to less enjoyment because you have more responsibilities, and what you thought was going to lead to something wonderful and relaxing and great, many, many times doesn't. It's more and more complicated. And you're to the point where, as the latter part of the verse says, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? I thought I was going to be able to enjoy all this stuff and all I'm doing is actually just watching it all happen and watching the business side of things happen. Oh, That's why we would want to draw the conclusion wealth brings complications. Now, some of us are saying, I would like to enjoy some of those complications. Let me try it. Not for ultimate significance. You wouldn't want to try it. And then verse 12 says, Sweet is the sleep. This is ironic. Sweet is the sleep of the laborer or of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Total irony. Whether he's speaking literally or figuratively, it's completely ironic. You know, I'm just just an hourly guy. Clock in, clock out, leave the job, at the job, go home, night-night. Whereas the big boss who makes all the money, let's take it literally, he has a big feast can't sleep he eats so much good food who's better off maybe the big boss isn't so better off or figuratively he worries i just clock in clock out go home and everything's fine and the guy who's in charge who's making all the big bucks and finding his significance and being the big powerful guy he's stressed out he can't even sleep night night not me solomon's saying hey you think all the answers are in wealth? Wealth brings complications. Let's move to a third conclusion about wealth It leads to emptiness. Wealth is sometimes lost. It's sometimes lost. Verse 13, and brace yourself for this one. The, the author here is getting upset about this. This, this is, is outrageous. Verse 13 says, there is a grievous evil. This is morally scandalous. This really makes me mad, he's saying that I have seen under the sun, riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. He's amassing to his or her own hurt, and it's not bringing him pleasure. It's supposed to bring pleasure, and it brings pain. That's wrong. That's grievous evil. That's not how it's supposed to be. Verse 14 says, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And especially think first, first century kind of culture, ancient Middle Eastern kind of culture. And now he, has a, now he has a son with no inheritance to give him. That's shameful. Here he was rich and it just led to trouble. And then business deal gone bad, he loses it and has nothing. How shameful is that? And he's so upset about it. He says, this is a grievous evil. This is not right. When you work, you should be able to enjoy the fruit of your labors. That's how it should be. And when it's not that way, it makes me mad. Kind of makes me cower a little bit. He's worked up. He's worked up and offended and having his sensibilities offend offended that wealth is sometimes lost. But it is, isn't it? Sometimes it is. But in reality, where he's going now is, eventually, it always is. Number four, fourth conclusion about wealth, it leads to emptiness. Wealth is always lost, eventually. You want to see somebody get really mad now? Well, verse 15 and following, he gets really mad. As he, that's the rich man of verse 14, not the son, as he came from his mother's womb, He shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Sounds a lot like Job chapter 1, right? Reminiscent of Job 1. Naked I came, naked I will go. It's true. It's true. Even if you don't lose it in a business deal gone bad, you're going to lose it. Because just as you came in with nothing, they're going to put you in that box with nothing. And if they put you in that box with something, you won't be using it. That's creepy. Unsettling. Troubling to us. True. And the author of Ecclesiastes is fired up about it. Troubled by it. Look how troubled he is in verse sixteen. This also is a grievous evil. This is oh, makes me so mad. This is scandalous. This is outrageous. It's not right. Just as he came, so shall he go. This naked and helpless. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? This just makes everything worthless. It seems so promising because I can just do more and accomplish more and have more and it money buys a lot. And then you die and you enjoy none of it. And he is scandalized by the whole thing. Very offended. Toils for the wind. I guess this is just as dumb as chasing the wind. That's what my dog does, by the way. I promise not to use my dog as every illustration now that we have a dog, but, you know, it's easy, so I'm going there. Um, Sorry to offend all of you who don't have dogs. You can't relate. Yes, you can. My silly little dog chases the wind. It's like the dumbest thing in the world, and you think, what a dumb dog. You know, just chases the wind. When the wind comes up, she knows she wants to go outside because she knows that it blows the leaves around. And she knows that those leaves aren't actually leaves. Those leaves are actually rodents, and we have a rodent hunting dog. And then she figures out and catches the leaf, and it's not a mouse or a rat. And she thinks, this is dumb. It's not a mouse or a rat. And then she chases the next one, because surely that's a mouse or a rat. And on it goes. Our dog loves to chase the wind. Our dog is dumb. (laughs) You know, you'd think she would learn. You'd think we would learn, after all this observation of life and death and life and death and life and death and life and death, and you come in naked and you leave, well, they might put put some clothes on you, but it's not really yours anymore. You're not going to be able to benefit from it. In essence, you're leaving naked. And to pursue all of these things for ultimate lasting meaning is as dumb as a dog chasing the leaves. It's chasing the wind. But we don't get it. And Solomon is saying, Lord, please, let me help you. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity, meaning everything is futile. And you say, that, li- that sounds like he's saying our life is a waste. Move to the front of the class. He's saying your life is a waste. Unless you have a true knowledge of God. And that's where he ends the letter. But in the meantime, before we get the all warm and fuzzy, you know, encouragement part. He's got to really make the point and take us all out at our knees. Vanity of vanity. Everything is vanity. Including. The great American dream. And if you don't believe me, go home and read the obits. It all ends. It's a downer. I'll grant you that. It's very much a downer. But it's to help us to see our need. It seems verse 17 comes in light of knowing that it's chasing after the wind. So in light of that, with that fresh on our minds, verse 17 says, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation or trouble or angst and, and sickness and anger. I think that's a that's a metaphor. That's 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 not real. That's not reality. He, he doesn't eat in darkness. He, he's in the spotlight. He's the rich guy. He's not alone. He has all kinds of servants, relationships. But it's a depressing metaphor, nevertheless. Because when you figure out that you, and doing all of these things, and having all of the stuff, you know, and, and here you are, and you figure out that you're going to go naked out of the world with nothing... Now you begin to live your life now in darkness and vexation and trouble. Oh, it's what's going to happen. It's what he wants to have happen, strangely enough. And then we move on to verses 18, 19, and 20. Again, verses if you took them out of context, I think that might actually, you know, you figure out, well, we'll enjoy life is the solution. I think in the flow of context, he's not saying this is the solution. He's a He's resigning himself to this. Uh, He's anesthetizing himself. All right, if this is the case, and I don't have any more information, I guess I should just enjoy life. So verse 18 says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. I think there's kind of a depressing note in there. The few days of his life, this is his lot. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. He's not an atheist. He's viewing this as at least some sort of theist. Even though he doesn't have much information, he knows he believes in this higher power God who provides these things. Verse 20, For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I guess we're just supposed to enjoy these things and kind of anesthetize ourselves and just kind of go through life comfortably numb. Pass me another drink. Let's have more culinary delights. At least we can enjoy these things tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. Got a lot of issues, though, because I know what's coming. But let's try to enjoy it along the way. Seems to be the best thing. By the way, you might want to write in your margin of verse 18, 19, and 20, chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, because you might be tempted to think that the... Ultimate meaning is found in just enjoying life and you say, oh, I I get it The the point of all of this is You know, enjoy what you do have and that'll really be the the road to true happiness is pleasure Again, I could totally go there, but that's kind of been spoiled from chapter 2 verse 1 chapter 2 verse 1 said I said in my heart Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself but behold this also was vanity, futility. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? So make sure you read that in a bigger context. The ultimate way to be happy is not to enjoy the simple pleasures in life. There's got to be something more. Because he's still saying everything's futile. Meaninglessness of Meaninglessness. He's still saying in our verbiage, life sucks and then you die. How offensive. Yeah. It's where he's going. It's where he's going. So that we can search with eagerness, so that we can say, then what? So my life can have meaning. Number five, a fifth conclusion about wealth that leads to emptiness, since your esteem is so high now. um, How about Ecclesiastes, man? I heard a pastor say last week that Ecclesiastes is his favorite book. I'm pretty convinced he doesn't know how to read it. Um, I think I would like to subscribe to his hermeneutical system to figure out how to read Ecclesiastes differently. So it could be my favorite book, too. But it's not. (laughs) Maybe it's going to become later on my favorite preparation for the gospel. (laughs) And uh, maybe it's with with purpose that we'll study a gospel after this. um, Because we need lots of good news. Um, And I think that's where Ecclesiastes is taking us. So in that sense, it really is good. But it's heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. Number five, that fifth conclusion about wealth. Wealth may not be enjoyed by the wealthy. Wealth may not be enjoyed by the wealthy. Now we're into chapter 6. There is an evil. He, man, he's, he's calling evil. He, he's saying something is evil. Pretty interesting uh, that he would be so bold. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. Wow, what's it going to be? And it lies heavy on mankind. So it's common. It's oppressive. Verse 2. A man to whom God gives wealth, possession, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. You want to know what I think is evil? That God, God would give these things, and yet God would not allow the very one who receives these things, the wealthy person, to enjoy them. That's scandalous, the author is saying. If you want to know what's morally perverse and corrupt and wrong, it's that a rich person can't enjoy his riches. What kind of God is that? The reality is, oftentimes rich people don't get to enjoy their riches. Adding insult to injury is the end of verse 2. But a stranger enjoys them. Maybe not even his family, not even via inheritance. It's a stranger that enjoys them. This is vanity. This is futility. It is a grievous evil. to think because what seems right is if you work hard for something you should get to enjoy that something and it doesn't always work that way and I can't think of anything worse than that the author's saying I'm so frustrated but it's true isn't it it's how it works sometimes well developing things further we come to a sixth conclusion about wealth that leads to emptiness as we move to verse 3 the point is this, number six, wealth secures less happiness than the unmentionable. Wealth, as he's busy being mad and upset, notice that wealth secures less happiness than the unmentionable. And I realize that's an awkward don't know where I'm going, doesn't make sense yet. I actually wrote out the unmentionable and crossed it out and wrote unmentionable. Because I don't even like to say it. I just want to read it in the verse. I don't even want it in my outline. I'm so uncomfortable saying it. Verse 3 says, If a man fathers a hundred children, Oh, think about ancient agrarian kind of culture. Different kind of culture, wow, blessed, amazing, wealthy man. Fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many. Wow, successful, wealthy, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Oh, and by the way, in light of Ecclesiastes, it won't be, it can't be. And he also has no burial. Some kind of honor. Ending life with honor. Then notice what it says at the end. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Which is the unmentionable. Wow. Wow. rich leads a long life very very wealthy many people say what a blessed individual if he can't find significance in those things true significance, true joy in those things I say that a stillborn child is better off than he you say oh This is awful. What a thing to say. I'm not sure if it would be as troubling in that world as our world, but no doubt he's making a troubling point. It's meant to make us real sober-minded. How could that be? That seems like an utter impossibility. He had all the super long life with all these great blessings. And you're going to say that that one who's never seen the light of day has had a better life than he? Huh? That's hard-hitting. That's unsettling. Verse 4, For it comes in vanity. This is talking about the stillborn. It comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Verse 5, Moreover, it, the stillborn, has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. The rich man with all of his responsibilities, with all of his toiling, with all of his pursuits and with all of the, all of the dissatisfaction because it's not going to deliver and you're going to end up living in darkness when you figure out that you came in naked and you're going to leave naked and you have all these complexities in your life and even though you lived a long life, at least the baby that was actually never exposed to the light of day didn't have all of the angst and didn't have all of the trouble. Verse 6 says, even though he, the rich person, should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. This genuine enjoyment. Do not all go to the one place. What's What's he saying there at the end? The great spoiler of it all is death. That guy dies too. And his life was filled with all kinds of difficulty and both die i don't know about you but my sensibilities say it'd be just be better off living and going through all this stuff even though life is hard you know I'd i'd rather have a life solomon is giving us a word from the wise if it means you're going to find your significance in your wealth and in the here and now and who you are you know what You'd be better off if you were a stillborn baby. This is never going to deliver. It's never going to deliver. If you think that in this world you can have your best life now, how about that? Fulfillment in the things and riches that money can buy. You need to know that in comparison A stillborn baby is better off than your best life now. That's pretty sobering. It's very unsettling. Verse 7 proverbial statement All the toil of man is for his mouth. Yet his appetite is not satisfied. You know, what a picture, huh? What do I, do? What do I work so hard for? for? For what I want and what I have pleasure in. And here he's using food. and just, you know, I'm going to work hard so I can fill my mouth. And I'm never full. The image is a grotesque one. i got to have more, whether it's education or whether it's looks or whether it's relationships or whatever it is. Whatever money can buy, i got to do it, do it, do it. And the reality is, sort of how we started, it's just never going to deliver. It's a bad savior. It's a bad Savior. Dissatisfaction is how it's always going to end. It's like a treadmill. And every godly person knows that treadmills are awful. (laughs) You never get anywhere. Verse 8. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And typically we would say, even in Proverbs, from a different perspective, when he's talking about a different issue, he'd say, well, the great advantage. But that's not what he's talking about here when it comes to ultimate meaning, ultimate significance. He's implying that there's no advantage. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Intriguing question. The typical answer would be, oh, he has some know-how so he can then have some influence and maybe be seen as wise so he doesn't have to be poor anymore and be successful and work his way out of a bad scenario. But verse 9 says, better is the sight of the eyes, better is reality than the wandering of the appetite. Better, better if you can just see things for what they really are. Far better than you just keep pursuing the treadmill venture of destination that never leads to a destination. It's futility. And then verse 9 sort of caps everything off and, and, and summarizes everything. And it says, uh, the latter part of 9, this. Probably referring to everything he's been talking about. Many commentators think that. That seems to make sense to me. It's a summary statement. A concluding statement. This, all of this also is vanity and a striving after wind. It's not the answer. It's not the answer. And then finally, a seventh conclusion about wealth that leads to emptiness is that wealth is not where true power is. Wealth is not where true knowledge is. It doesn't give us power. It doesn't give us knowledge, even though we think it does. He's going to make that point clear that ultimately God is in charge. Uh, Even a smart unbeliever can understand that. It's not true power. It's not true knowledge. Verse 10 says, Whatever has come to be has already been named. You can work really hard and try to change everything and change the situation and the circumstance. He's acknowledging something of the sovereignty of God here. What has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. You can be mad, bothered, bugged, hacked off, whatever you want to call it, and take it up with God about, I don't think this is right that I lose my wealth. I don't think it's right if I work hard to have to leave it to a stranger. I don't think if I work hard that I have to go and leave naked and they put me in a box. I don't like it. I'm not for it. I have a problem with it. I find it uh, horribly evil, as this guy's been saying, making these moral pronouncements. And here, the point is, well, you know what? you're not able to dispute with the one who's stronger than you are. You can't can't fix this one. You you, you can't correct this one. Verse 11 says, The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? You can object and say, I don't think this is right. I think it's evil. You can keep saying that like you have been saying that. And the more words, the more vanity. You'd be better off if you just shut your mouth. Because we're talking about somebody who's stronger than you. We're talking about someone who's stronger than the most wealthy person. We're talking about God. Something to ponder. Verse 12 says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? And you can read that as, well, God knows that. Or you could read it as just a question of frustration. I lean more toward the latter. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain, useless, pointless life, which he passes like a shadow. Ah, Kind of thing. Or the next one. for For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And you could say, well, God can. Or you can leave it here. I tend to lean more that way. He's just upset. Who knows? I, I don't know the answers. I need answers. I don't know answers. I should probably shut my mouth because I don't have the answers. And one more time, I have to write a sermon, uh, write my sermon notes and end with, Ugh! <laughs> Bad conclusion. <laughs> you know? But I think it's about the most fitting conclusion. Oh, man. This is frustrating. But I do want to take you to one other passage to make some sense out of the frustration and anguish. And that's 1 Timothy chapter 6, which talks about riches and rich people and the gospel. So so let's move beyond life is meaningless. Let's move beyond life is short. Let's go to hope. Let's look at this from a Christian perspective. We could go to chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes to do that. But, But let's, for the sake of time, go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. You know, it would be kind of interesting, just as a little experiment, is if I would have preached the whole sermon and just ended with, "Ah!" How about that? And I won't close in prayer, and we won't have a closing song. It would be kind of interesting. Just walk out and get in my truck and drive away. I had a seminary professor who probably would just do just that, just to make a point. There's something in me that would kind of like to do that, by the way. Not just because I'm having a bad day. (laughs) It's good for us to be desperate. It's good for us to have a really sober, in-your-face reminder that all of this stuff that we're going to go pursue today is a really bad Savior. It's obviously healthy because we have like 11 plus chapters of it with just a few glimpses of hope in Ecclesiastes. So let's just pretend like I did that, but I'm, I'm far too nice a guy um, to do it that way. First Timothy 6 is fascinating because he's dealing with rich people. It's a book about the gospel and the church but it helps us to see that money's not really the problem. Everything under the sun is the problem, and the solution, whether it's dealing with money or or whatever, the solution ends up being the gospel. So let, let's just spend a few minutes looking at these closing verses of chapter six of First Timothy. First Timothy chapter six verse seventeen says, "As for the rich," so he's talking about rich people in the church, so they have money. "As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes." On the uncertainty of riches. If you just want to put your finger there, just pause for a second. That's what we've been talking about as far as hope, you know, lasting um, identity, who you really are, where your trust is. And he says, remind them not to not to put set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And by the way, I'm I'm not fond of correcting the Bible, and I'm not really doing that. I'm just trying to make a, a point. We know, actually, riches are certain, don't we? We've been learning about that. They're certain to fail you. But he's just saying it in a different way. Remind people with money, in a sense, the problem isn't the money. The problem is when that is where your hope is. So remind them of that. The Christian way to think about this is to not say, Oh, so riches are the problem. No, everything under the sun is the problem. And Solomon's taking aim at different big issues. Right now he's taking aim at the money issue. And it is a huge problem if it's where your hope is. But here he's saying, just just remind those rich people who are Christians that their hope is not ultimately in their riches, but remind them of that. I love it that he's doing that. It's helpful to us. And then he says, but on God. Oh, so their hope is is hope on God or hope in God. Their trust is not in themselves and their accomplishments or anything under the sun, to use Ecclesiastes' verbiage. Their hope is not on anything under the sun, but their hope is on God. Their identity ultimately is tied up with who God is and His character and His being and His promises. And now we're seeing how we should see this. And then I like what he says at the end of verse 17. This is talking about God who richly... Provides us with everything ah, to enjoy. How about even money? It's for sure in view here. Someone entitled Ecclesiastes is uh, with this theme, Why Everything Matters. That's counterintuitive if you know anything about Ecclesiastes because you first need to, if you're going to come to that conclusion, you first need to come to the conclusion that Ecclesiastes clearly teaches that, what? Nothing matters. Everything is futile. But if you come to the end of your rope and you figure out, oh, that's why I need a true knowledge of who God is, so my hope and identity can be found in Him and in His promises, oh, now, haha. <laughs> ha, everything matters because it can all be harnessed to give Him honor and glory and praise. So I love it that that we're seeing this all sorted out in such a nice way here. Money's not the problem. Everything under the sun is the problem. That's why we need to trust in God and have our identity be in Him, which can then lead us to see everything appropriately, including riches. Then verse 18 says... They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves. He's using treasure again, richness terminology, as a good foundation for the future. Well, in Ecclesiastes, there is no future. You just die, and then we have no idea what happens. This is far different. So that they may make take hold of that which is truly life. That is the kind of statement you don't have in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6. Truly life. Now we have something lasting, genuine. Build your life upon this. And in the context here, he's talking about the gospel. The true knowledge of God, life in Christ. Truly life. Now, that could be enough. And that, I was going to stop there, but verse 20, now he's going to talk to Timothy, but he keeps up the rich talk just to make his point. Oh, Timothy. Guard the deposit. That's money talk. But he's talking about the gospel. But he just carried on. Well, While we're talking about money, let me keep using that verbiage. And let me talk about what's really important. That it will really give you true identity. The deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by, press, by, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Oh, that's another gospel word. So the deposit is the faith, which is the gospel. And he says, grace be with you. And that is the place where we get the true knowledge of God. God has spoken in many ways. Hebrews chapter 1. And in these last days, these final culminating days, he's spoken to us through his Son, How do we have true, lasting, genuine meaning in life so that everything matters, including our riches, including what we do with our riches? It all happens because we have a true knowledge of God because our hope is in Him and it's ultimately in Christ. So Ecclesiastes is a great book preparing us, turning us upside down so that we're desperate and ready to move from nothing mattering to everything mattering. And it matters because of Christ. So let's leave encouraged and not discouraged. Father, thank you that we don't have to end this sermon with a big groan or a cry of desperation. That we can actually come to grips even better with the reality of Christ. Help us also this morning to realize and to know that people around us are desperate. Whether they realize they're desperate or not. And it will all end badly and they have a futile life view and perspective if they think long enough and wisely enough about it. If they don't have that which provides true, genuine, lasting significance and meaning, the truth, the gospel, eternal life, hope in God, that which will carry us beyond the grave. Help us to put things into perspective. Help us to have a burden for those around us. For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.